Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Green Section Podcast. I'm John Petrovsky, host and education manager in the Green Section. Dr. Ben Worley of Texas A&M joins us this month to discuss the topic of light and how much of it grass needs. Ben's conducted research and written extensively on the topic, and he shared some great information with us. Dr. Ben Worley, thanks for joining us. We get a ton of questions in the green section about trees, shade, sort of how much light does grass need to produce a quality playing surface. Since you wrote a great article for us in the green section record, figured you were a ideal person to have on today. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure to be with you. You got your PhD from NC State. You did some neat research for your dissertation on irrigating Bermuda grass with recycled water. But I'm always curious how people first got interested in turf. And what led you to kind of pursue a career in academia? Well, I grew up in uh, eastern Ohio. And I think my my interest in turf started uh, in high school. I had an opportunity to work on a nearby golf course that was built by a, a friend of ours and his, and his brothers in, near Canton, Ohio. And uh, just really loved uh, working there, getting up early and, and the challenge of uh, really the science and the art of it all. Uh, love being outdoors, and and that really just led into uh, well, I actually didn't even realize that there was a major for that. Let's put it that way. Uh, went two and a half years uh, doing an undergrad, really pursuing, uh, eventually trying to get to vet school. And while I was doing that, I could I could not wait to get out of class each day and go out and work on a, a golf course that was just north of Columbus. After about four months of this, the superintendent said to me, "Hey, you ought to." think about going into this major. Next thing you know, I was visiting with Bill Pound at Ohio State and, and uh, ended up transferring in and, and just found that it was the perfect fit for me and worked for a little while as an assistant then had an opportunity to come back to grad school. And, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And uh, I am where I am today uh, just because I really enjoyed working with students and, and doing the research uh, that a professor does. So, that's how I got to where I am today. Very cool. Now, we hear this alphabet soup kind of of terms when talking about like PAR and PPFD, DLI. To sort of set the table, can you give us a brief summary of how turf scientists measure and talk about light? And then really, what do golf course superintendents need to know about it? Well, uh you know, obviously light is critically important. We think about the, the sun's energy and it provides plants the ability to uh, produce energy. And, and so light's critically important, but the way we measure it uh, and the way we discuss it uh, can get a little complicated at times. Um, the, the terms that you've mentioned, uh, uh, including PAR, a lot of times we'll hear PAR and, and that's just a, very simply put, it's photosynthetically active radiation. And it's really just a, a descriptive term for the, the type of light we're talking about. Uh, as you know, there's ultraviolet light uh, on, the, on the downstream side of the spectrum, and there's infrared light um, at higher wavelengths. But PAR is that, is that light that the plant responds to, and more specifically, that drives photosynthesis. Uh, it happens to be the same light that uh, we can see uh, with our eyes. So it's the same spectrum as visible light uh, being 400 to 700 nanometers. Uh, now, 
beyond par, when we talk about quantifying that amount of light that's hitting turf, uh, oftentimes you'll hear terms like PPF or PPFD, which is photosynthetic photon flux. And that essentially is about is in relation to the number of photons that are hitting a given area, specifically a metered square, square meter of turf uh, in a second, so in an interval of time. So we can look at that as a flux, which may not have much bearing to a superintendent. Uh, maybe it gives them a point in time reference. Uh, but what the industry has moved to in the last few years is really looking at this in terms of what we call DLI, and that's daily light integral. So if we were to sum up the total number of photons that we've collected per second uh, over the course of an entire day, uh, what that would give us is really a much larger value, uh, and, and we typically refer to that as moles per meter squared per day. And this DLI is really what we're using uh, nowadays because we have instrumentation that will directly tell us DLI, uh, and we're starting to do research uh, to specifically determine what are those minimal thresholds of DLI uh, for grasses that we are uh, growing on our golf course. So when it comes to turf, we'll discuss light in terms of the DLI. And another way I've, I've heard of it put before and I really like is it's like uh, when we talk about DLI, it's almost like looking at light uh, like you would a, a rain gauge. You know, if you're collecting rain and you say, how much rain did we have over the last day? Well, you can look at light the same way as how much light did we have over the last day? And it takes into account all the variations throughout the day that might occur due to sun flex or, or sh shadowing or the angle of the light. Uh, and it essentially just sums it up into one value. And that, that's really most biologically, act, uh, most biologically relevant to the plant. And so that's, I think that's the most important way we need to look at this uh, in terms of turf managers. Ben, to give us a frame of reference, can you give typical DLI requirements for some common grasses on golf courses? This time of year, August, how much light does a creeping bank grass green need in Ohio? kind of compared to an ultra dwarf green in Florida? That's a good question. So I think it's important to kind of set the stage and, and think about first off, what is, uh, what would we expect to see in terms of a, almost a maximal fun, full sun DLI in that situation? So let's say midsummer. There've been some nice uh, maps that have been generated online that, that you can actually go into and select your location and it will give you historical DLI values for your location. And what we see is, for instance, in much of the eastern United States, uh, that value is going to be around 45 moles per day, per meter square per day in the summertime. Now, in the, of course, in the fall and in the spring, that's going to drop off because of the angle of incidence of the sun uh, dropping and our photo period uh, declining. Uh, in the winter, it's going to be the lowest, as we know. And so when we look at these DLI, these critical values, uh, it's really important to take into context what time of year it is. Now, I'll say most of the research has been done during summertime. So, you know, that's what I'll speak most to. But uh, in terms of these minimal DLIs, um, they just vary by species, but they tend to, you know, in terms of a uh, creeping bentgrass green, there hasn't been a lot of research done on this. Uh, 
uh, Arkansas uh, came out with some some numbers for a specific cultivar of bentgrass here a few years back. Uh, I think it was Taiyi bentgrass, uh, creeping bentgrass. And uh, what they showed was that the minimal DLI that was required for acceptable performance and quality was around 30. Uh, so if we think of that in terms of what full sun is, full sun being around 45, kind of gives you an idea, getting back to the percentage of full sun, uh, what that cultivar really requires. Now we think about Bermuda grasses uh, in terms of ultra dwarfs. Much of that initial research was done at Clemson uh, probably 20 years ago now, but that work showed that uh, that for Tiff Eagle Bermuda grass and, and a couple of the other ultra dwarfs, we really needed closer to 32, uh, sometimes a little higher uh, to, to achieve that acceptable quality. Uh, so that, you know, you think about what these light levels are, they're, they're actually pretty high managing creeping bentgrass species. Now, when you move into other types of turf, uh, you know, at, at, for instance, fairway situations, what we see is uh, these numbers start to go down meaning they're not needing quite as much light. And there's a bigger set of data for these types of DLI values, and really they're all across the board. And so uh, I guess we can maybe talk about those as we move on, but uh, there's there's been a growing body of data uh, in this area of research. So height of cut does make a difference. It does. In general, uh, as we might expect, um, you know, in shade when we raise our mowing height, uh, that's going to help the plant. Uh, and what we see is that that results oftentimes in a lower uh, DLI requirement. Uh, and it's, again, it's uh, not, not the case with all species, but uh, it, it's a general rule of thumb that we see for sure. Yeah, there's not much margin for error when you think about 30 moles per day for creeping bank grass. And in the, maybe in the fall and spring, that's pretty much what full sun is. So if you have any any shade at all, you're kind of dropping below the minimum requirement. That's right. And I, I, you know, what's interesting about that is you look at, we oftentimes think about Bermuda grasses, for example, as hot enough to grow Bermuda grass and you should be able to grow Bermuda grass. But you look at a lot of places in Asia um, where there's just a lot of uh, cloud cover throughout the year. Um, temperatures are plenty warm to grow Bermuda grass, but uh, it's that cloud cover that reduces that DLI to the point. Uh, you just can't grow some of those ultra dwarfs. And that's why some of these other, the zoysias have, have become so popular over there. Any superintendent can tell you that annual bluegrass thrives in low light conditions where some other grasses may struggle. I've seen some ag research looking at weeds under dense crop canopies. Um, I saw one study that said Poe can survive at some pretty ridiculously low DLIs. Has anyone looked at the DLI requirements of POA annua and turf settings? I know there's a lot of research going on with POA these days. Uh, a lot of it deals with herbicide resistance. I'm really not familiar with uh, anybody doing work in that area. Now, I will say, uh, you know, when I was a master's student at Ohio State, I had some tall fescue plots in a shaded area. And uh, to your point, uh, I remember one Christmas break, I, I, I kind of shut things down in uh, mid-December, and I came back about a month later, and we had about three weeks of snow cover, and those plots were perfectly clean when I had, had left in December, came back three weeks later, and they were nearly probably 100% covered in POA. 
under that snow. So to your point, yeah, I think some poa and some of the other poa species, poa annua and, and some of the uh, close relatives, do have very low DLIs. Uh, there has been a little work uh, with some of the Kentucky bluegrasses and Texas hybrid bluegrasses that uh, came out of Texas A&M a few years back and showed that uh, uh, the DLIs for some of these cultivars were in the teens uh, and, and actually, um, you know, surprisingly lower than you might think. Then again, these were probably treated with fungicide, et cetera. So some of the other pressures that might take these out in, in real world environments may not have been at play there. Staying on the research theme, I've been asked more than once how shade fabric researchers use compares to shade from an actual tree next to a green, that maybe it's excluding different wavelengths than tree leaves do. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's definitely the case. You know, in research, uh, the vast majority of shade research utilizes what we call uh, we call neutral density shade fabric, and it's just black shade fabric at varying densities that um, effectively have no no influence on the spectral qualities of that light. So, uh, you know, if you were to look at a graph of spectral quality and you might see where it's peaking in the reds and the, and the blues, you'd see those same peaks, okay, in the shaded and under neutral shade, okay, black shade fabric. Uh, and because of that, I think some, a lot of, you know, very, uh, it's valid that uh, folks are oftentimes critical of this research. Uh, the reason is in, in natural shaded environments where you have vegetation that's actually filtering that light, uh, those leaves are robbing, uh, they're robbing the, the incoming light of uh, very important wavelengths, uh, reds and blues. And as that light passes through, the, the light that's received by the underlying turf uh, has much lower quality. Okay, so you could you know, make the argument that in a stadium, for example, uh, you might have the same light levels as you do in a shaded fairway, if you were to go out and take a quantum meter and measure that. Uh, however, that quality may be vastly different because of the vegetation in a, in a natural shade environment. So, uh, you know, if you look at the past research, what it shows is that uh, light quality uh, can have its independent effects on a plant uh, uh, independent of light intensity. Uh, and so, and those can come on a lot sooner uh, as you're starting to see declines in light intensity. You, you can see those effects of light quality much sooner. Uh, now, to that end, we've tried to mimic this in, in, um, in our growth chamber research where we use uh, shade claws, as you might say, or they're actually more uh, there's spectral filters that will selectively filter red and blue and let that far red pass through just like tree shade would. And in my experience, that's very difficult to replicate. We've never uh, had much success doing that. Uh, and, and it just speaks to the complication of trying to do shade work uh, of that type, okay, without using uh, neutral density black shade fabric. So uh, so it's hard to replicate natural shade. Uh, I know uh, Dominic Petrella, Minnesota, had done has has done a little bit of this more recently with some of the fine fescues, and he, he is showing some interesting differences in some of those fine fescues. 
Uh, I've never had much success with that uh, in my work, but I think it uh, it is an area that could use some uh, as an industry. I think that we could work on and and try to be a little more precise with replicating those natural shade environments to the best of our ability. Well, that's great info, Ben. It sounds like we're making quite a list here of uh, grant proposals for next year. <laughs> I, you, you mentioned quantum meters there. Turf researchers use lab-grade equipment like that to measure uh, PAR and come up with a DLI. Superintendents, I'll see them use sun tracking apps to kind of see how much light turf gets at certain times of the year or the day. Is there any tool like a quantum meter that's available to practitioners or not really? Yeah, there's some actually fairly low cost devices out there now. And uh, I know Mike Richardson's written a, a good article uh, in a couple of the industry magazines about some of these devices that are currently available. Uh, you know, quantum meters have come down to where they can be purchased for probably two, three hundred dollars. Uh, those give you instantaneous uh, photosynthetic photon flux. But now we actually have uh, DLI meters that are available uh, for the, the practitioner. Uh, I know Spectrum uh, manufactures a couple different types of these. Uh, these can be used just, just placed in a certain environment, uh, turned on and left for 24 hours. Uh, and, and after that period, uh, the, the DLI could, uh, can be determined for that environment. So uh, these are oftentimes in the couple hundred dollar range as well. So it uh, used to be that these were, gave you a really just kind of a range, you know, gave you maybe a 20% on either end range of what that DLI was, but they've become much more precise. And I think it's a useful tool now for the superintendent to uh, go in and start to develop some data sets for these areas that might be struggling uh, so they can start to really understand and have some documentation to support decisions if they do have to move into, say, tree removal or cultivar selection. They can base that on some of the data that we're generating out of the universities that are showing what those critical values should be, uh, but yet what those environments are supporting. There's nothing like going to a green committee meeting with some data that's kind of speaking their language and it can convince people to that tree that that Frank, everybody loved Frank and he planted it back in 1960, but it's killing our greens. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Moving a little bit more into the kind of practical side of things out on the golf course, getting turf sunlight in the morning is more important than in the afternoon. We hear that all the time. Superintendents often get recommendations to kind of prioritize tree removal on or pruning on the east side of green. Can you explain why morning light is more beneficial to turf? First of all, I would challenge that, that uh, hypothesis because I think if you look at the data, it's very mixed. And it's what I say is in theory, it looks like for cool season grasses, that makes sense. Uh, where, where we have uh, morning sun, uh, two things. One, it's helping to maybe burn off that dew quicker. Uh, reducing the leaf wetness period, that's going to help that plant. And then the combination of the afternoon shade in that situation actually is beneficial to the cool season plant. So we think about uh, C3 grasses, they, they kind of maximize their, their, uh, their light harvesting ability to about 50% of full sunlight in the summer. So as that shade in the afternoon comes on, it can actually be a little bit beneficial in some ways to reduce the heat load on that plant and reduce the potential for, you know, photorespiration. Uh, 
But when we look at warm season grasses, I almost think you could make a, a reverse argument that uh, that afternoon sun, higher light intensities, warmer temperatures, uh, that, that can actually be more beneficial. Uh, so I think it would almost be the flip. But I'm not convinced when we look at the data that's out there right now and people try to answer this question, it's really all over the board. Uh, and, and so, you know, I don't know that it's easy to make an argument one way or the other on that, but, but I will just say from a textbook and theoretical standpoint, it, seem, it does seem like uh, morning sun is better for cool season and uh, afternoon sun is probably more beneficial for warm season. Oh, we're going to have a two-page list for Dr. Cole Thompson when we get done with this podcast for, for proposals. There you go. We kind of focused on putting greens, but in general, what would be kind of your go-to grass? I know putting greens, let's leave it out of the argument. What would be your go-to grass for a cool season and warm season for maybe you know fairways and roughs? Also, what grasses should be avoided if shade's an issue on your course? Do you have like a favorite species in each case? Well, I, I don't know if I have a favorite species, but what I've seen in practice, uh, at least in the South, you know, a lot of golf courses come in with Bermuda grass gradually over time, uh, sometimes quicker than others. Uh, they'll begin to have to go into these shaded areas and, and start to swap out that Bermuda grass for uh, maybe a more shade tolerant Bermuda grass at first, but then ultimately what you'll see is they might try to move to a zoysia grass uh, cultivar to help cope with some of those shaded uh, situations. Uh, now, in terms of, uh, you know, what another thing we're seeing is, is on some of these courses that are being built, um, this almost like wall-to-wall -wall concept of uh, using some of the zoysia grasses. Um, uh, was at a course about a month ago, and um, it's it's uh, Zeon zoysia grass, you know, wall to wall. There's some other courses here that we see with other types of zoysias where they try to implement just just one cultivar at different heights across the the course. There, of course, I'm not talking about greens necessarily. Uh, you know, in the north, I, that it's probably a little harder to. To get to that answer, I mean, obviously, bent grass is is hard to beat. Uh, and and what I have seen is is some courses successfully use some of the turf type fescues in rough. Uh, depending on the location, that might be feasible. Uh, we also see uh, quite a bit more interest in some of the fine fescues these days. A lot of this may come down to golfer preference and playability, and uh, there are just so many factors. So it 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 really becomes challenging to, to kind of hone in on, on one grass or another, but uh, I think most of the time there are some options and, and uh, it's just, a, it kind of speaks back to the complexity of the whole issue, right? I mean, you're, you do have cultivar selection as a tool, uh, but oftentimes you're kind of stuck with the one you're, you're managing and, and so you have to look into some other cultural tools on how you can best manage that. Well, I know some of your research, including what you wrote about in the green section record a couple of years ago, uh, has focused on this aspect of warm season uh, turf species and cultivars and kind of the differences between them regarding their light requirements. Did you want to uh, discuss those results? Sure. So, yeah, we did a, I guess it was a two-year funded project uh, by USGA with the ultimate goal of uh, uh, determining DLI requirements. 
uh, for, for a group of zoysia grass and Bermuda grass cultivars. And so uh, the, the, the cultivars we used included uh, Tiffway, Tiff Grand, Celebration, uh, Latitude 36, uh, Bermuda. And then the zoysias that we used included Xeon, Zorro, Palisades, Jammer, and Geo. Uh, and we actually treated half of these plots with uh, growth regulator, Trinac spec ethyl, uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, and then the other half was left untreated. And so a couple things that, that kind of came out of this research is, um, interestingly, we just, we, we assume that the, the PGR would be beneficial in all cases, regardless of species. Uh, but what we found is that it was actually only beneficial on, on the zoysia grasses. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, had very little effect on the Bermuda grasses, uh, at least not statistically. Uh, and then, you know, DLIs, the other interesting finding was that we saw that these DLIs, uh, depending on the time of year, uh, change. So in the summer, we tend to see a higher light requirement. And in the fall and spring, we tend to see that these grasses have a little bit of a lower light requirement. It probably just speaks to the fact that there's less uh, demand on the plant. There's less growth, uh, less respiration. Uh, so the, the light inputs are not needed as, uh, to a greater, to a greater uh, extent uh, in those shoulder seasons. So in essence, what we saw was our Bermuda grasses uh, required uh, around 25 uh, moles per meter squared per day. Um, and that specifically was uh, the TIF Grand Celebration and Latitude. We didn't see a difference between those. Um, we saw a trend where Tiffway needed a little more light than those other three. So Tiffway was generally around 27 in the summertime. Uh, interestingly, the zoysia grasses were able to get by with lower DLIs. Uh, and we saw that those finer textured zoysias like the Zorro uh, and the Xeon actually performed the best. Uh, whereas those medium coarse textured ones like Palisades and Jammer uh, needed slightly more. So uh, for these fine textured uh, zoysias, we were down in the high teens in the summertime. Uh, and actually in the fall and spring, we were seeing that these DLIs were down in the mid to low teens. So. Uh, anywhere from, say, 13 to 15. Uh, so, it, again, it kind of speaks to when you're measuring that light environment, if you're doing this in October versus if you're doing this in June, uh, that number, that critical value you're looking for could differ a little bit. Uh, so it's probably, if you're not sure, probably just best to do this in the summertime because, as I mentioned, this is when most of our available data have been, uh, the studies have been conducted to de determine these values. Uh, that, you know, it was, it was an interesting study. Um, I think it was interesting from the standpoint of we just didn't see the effect of the PGR on those Bermuda grasses. Now that you don't see that consistently across other studies, but in our case, we definitely saw an effect on the zoysia grasses, uh, not so much on the Bermudas. If anyone wants to read more about the article you wrote for the Green Section Record, it was titled How Much Light is Enough? And it was published in the September 2021 issue. And it can be found under our research tab on the Green Section Record landing page. You mentioned Trinex Pack Ethyl. That's always been mentioned as improving quality of turf and shade. 
if there's no choice but to manage turf and shade, I shouldn't say always, it's it's been brought up as, it's been studied as helping turf and shade. What are some ways superintendents should adjust their maintenance practices though to get the best possible turf quality if there's no choice to but to manage turf and shade? Well, uh, there's a lot of practices I could mention, uh, but you know, I'll, I'll try to focus on the, I think the high hitting ones. To me, the, the most important thing you can start to look at is, is some of those uh, primary cultural practices. So you think about your mowing. Uh, what are some things you can do in shade? Well, uh, first thing is raise your mowing height uh, is, is to the extent you can uh, in order to give that plant a fighting chance. So you think about the way the plant adapts to shade, it becomes more elongated, more upright, longer internodes. And so as you continue to go through and cut that plant at the same height that you would in, in full sun, you're mowing off most of the, the photosynthetic apparatus. So raise that mowing height. Uh, the other thing I've mentioned is, is reduce your nitrogen inputs. I'll give you an example, and it's not a golf example, but Minute Maid Park is a real unique situation. A lot of the major leaguers say it's the, the best ballpark surface they play on in the majors. And, and it, most people may not realize, but uh, the amount of light that that field receives is, is extremely low. Uh, it's not constant shade, but what it is, is it kind of goes in between full sun and, and just almost no light. Uh, but but in speaking to their former field manager, Dan Bergstrom, he, he said his key was keeping nitrogen low. And he would keep that field at one pound of N uh, per thousand square feet per year. And it was seashore past pallum, uh, but it's extremely low. He would go in at uh, essentially a 20th of a pound of N every week through that growing season. Uh, and, and just did a phenomenal job. He was also big on micronutrients uh, just to keep that plant health uh, uh, high. And uh, so I would say, you know, managing your nitrogen, keeping those inputs as low as you can, uh, that is a very common trend in the data, in the, in the research data. What we see is that as you increase your nitrogen, you're promoting that, you're promoting shoot growth. Okay. And that the, the shoots always get the carbohydrates before the roots and the below ground uh, structure. So, and nitrogen stimulates that. So what we, what we want to do is we want to keep nitrogen managed at a low level, maybe bring in some growth regulators uh, to suppress that vertical growth, keep the energy in the plant. Uh, then some other tools would be to manage moisture well. And this could be through tr uh, tree removal, uh, pruning, uh, you know, whipping those greens in the morning or mowing uh, just to, to cut that uh, leaf wetness period. Uh, manage moisture, maybe through moisture meters, uh, because these the ET in these greens is certainly lower than what we're going to see in full sun. So uh, they're not going to need as much water. Uh, from a secondary cultural standpoint, I think it's important to think about things like because that plant is growing more upright in shade, we have less uh, lateral growth. There's really not as much of a need to aerate or verticut these greens. Uh, so, you know, give serious thought to whether you need to be coming in and, and verticutting or aerating shaded areas as frequently as these full sun areas. 
because sometimes it just becomes more of a stress on that plant. Uh, and so those are some big picture uh, things that I think should be considered. Uh, and, and just really traffic. Traffic is one that, you know, we, I don't think we give enough credit to. And I've seen situations where superintendent will just come out, and throw some ropes up and divert traffic. And with just a couple of weeks, it's amazing you, you, the rebound you see in those areas. So uh, if you're able to manage traffic, whether it's foot traffic or the equipment you're using, you need to put smooth rollers on those mowers, maybe use turning boards if that's possible on those collars just to protect those areas. Uh, traffic is another really big one. Uh, we could go on and on, but I'll stop there on, on that. You mentioned uh, the stadiums. One piece of technology that kind of left sports turf and went to golf, we've seen some courses, our USGA agronomist out west in the Pacific Northwest, Corey Isom, he's seen some courses actually use grow lights in some extreme cases of shade. Do you think that's an option for, for a golf course? Do you see uh, any challenges with that? Well, I think the biggest challenge when you start talking about grow lights is just their cost. You know, even even when we look at uh, stadiums and these kind of uh, situations, uh, the cost and then the infrastructure that might need to be brought in to, to power these uh, could be a, a limitation for most courses. Now, uh, if the course has the ability to do this, uh, I think there is potential. Probably one of the biggest advantages is that the areas that we're probably putting these lights on are much smaller than than what you'd have in a stadium. You know, and, and I think in general, what we see with these grow lights is they have the potential. Uh, these banks of lights, depending on the manufacturer, the size, uh, but they have the potential to, if left on an area uh, over 24 hours. Uh, they, they certainly have the potential to, to bring in a, sometimes up to 20 or 30 uh, DLI. Um, so, you know, we think about what that minimal light level might need to be. You know, if we have a really shaded green and it's only getting 10 moles of light, uh, moles per meter squared per day, and we, and we have the ability to bring in a bank of lights and boost that or double that or even triple that, that could certainly make the difference between uh, a plant that's not going to make it and one that's going to actually perform very well. So uh, now is it feasible? Uh, you know, are we going to be able to bring in lights for 24 hours? Absolutely not. But if we can do that over the nighttime, if, if someone really wants to do that, um, then I think you could see some, uh, you know, you could see some definite uh, movement uh, in the amount of light that's, that's getting brought into that turf and, and, uh, and be the difference between uh, failure and success. Uh, again, I think most stadium situations, you know, there has to be good justification for doing that just simply because of the cost, uh, you know, there has to be some additional revenue sources brought in oftentimes to kind of justify the use of those lights. So it's a very interesting, uh, area of research. There's certainly a lot of technology that's being developed to bring in uh, LEDs and other types of lights that may not require quite as high of a light or energy requirement. And uh, so I think that probably 10 years down the road, we're going to start to see some uh, maybe more growth in this area for sure. Thinking beyond shade, but also considering debris, roots, and all the other issues that come with certain trees, 
Are there any trees that you simply would not recommend ever being planted on a golf course? Well, that's a good question. Um, in the South, we, we probably would like to avoid, at least in areas that are close to play, we, we like to avoid use of uh, uh, certain, certain species like bald cypress just because their roots become uh, so, so prominent as they move out above ground uh, and, and surrounding areas. Um, you know, certain trees have issues with, uh, you know, limb structure like some of the uh, Bradford pears and some of the pear, pear type species. I don't know that there'd be a, in terms of light, I don't know that there would be a specific uh, type of tree that I would um, discourage. It's interesting when you look in the literature, you see some uh, differentiation uh, between, you know, coniferous and, and uh, deciduous trees. Uh, some of the literature would, would suggest that, uh, you know, spruce trees and pine trees actually have less effect on light quality reductions than, than do um, deciduous trees. So there may be an argument there to plant more pine and spruce if you're able to, as opposed to uh, hardwood uh, uh, deciduous trees. So uh, there might be an argument for that. Uh, I think by in general, you know, if we look at our industry, it's encouraging now though with some of the development of some of the technologies and apps. Um, we look at, we have more ability now to selectively uh, cut limbs on trees and selectively remove specific trees uh, that might be causing specific issues on greens. Uh, or, or tees, you know, different areas on that course. Uh, just really more of a targeted approach than what we would have used in the past. So, uh, you know, in terms of complete removal of trees, hopefully that doesn't need to be quite as substantial uh, as it has been in the past, uh, just using some of the, implementing some of the technology that we have now. Well, Dr. Worley, thanks again for your time today and sharing your expertise on really one of the biggest issues facing superintendents. Uh, some great information and will definitely be helpful. I also know you guys have a couple of turf research field days coming up this fall, so I would encourage anyone to check out the Texas A&M Turf website, and you can get more information on that too. So thanks again, and take care. Thank you very much, and uh, we're sure appreciative of USGA and all your efforts for the golf industry and for academia. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the USGA Green Section Podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep up with our latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication covering all things golf course management.